0: How did a friendship shape modern thought? Yesterday was Adam Smith's birthday. And today on The Curious Task, I speak with Dennis Rasmussen. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Dennis Rasmussen. Dennis is a political theorist whose research focuses primarily on the Enlightenment, the American founding, and the virtues and shortcomings of liberal democracy and market capitalism. He received his PhD from Duke University in 2005, and his BA from Michigan State University's James Madison College in 2000, and he has also held positions at Tufts University, the University of Houston, Brown University, and Bowdoin College. He's the author of more than just a couple of books, and one of them, The Infidel and the Professor, David Hume, Adam Smith, and the Friendship that Shape Modern Thought, will serve as the foundation for our discussion today. Dennis, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me. So in each episode, we ask a question and just go wherever the answers take us. Today, our question is, how did a friendship shape modern thought? Of course, the friendship we're talking about is the one between Adam Smith and David Hume. And this goes beyond the story of two men that just happened to be friends. This is an intriguing and unlikely story. You know, these two great minds lived in the same place at the same time and were concerned about the same things and began a deep friendship that basically shaped the course of modern thought on economics and philosophy especially. So what I'd like to do is start with each of those men first and and what they did, and then we can talk about them together. So at a high level, I'd like to throw it to you for just a brief overview. Who who was Adam Smith, separately from David Hume?
1: Sure. So Smith um, is often seen as the founder, the kind of intellectual founding father of capitalism. He's almost certainly... History's most famous theorist of commercial society. Um, of course, the word capitalism wasn't invented in his time, so he would have called it commercial society. Um, now, his modern interpreters, including myself, never tire of pointing out that he was, in fact, not just an economist who uh, theorized the invisible hand and championed free trade. He was instead a professor of moral philosophy. Um, what he called political economy was just one of his many intellectual interests. And Um, He recognized, in fact, to a greater degree than Hume did, as I point out in the book, a number of potential dangers and, and drawbacks associated with c- commercial society. Um, so he's not not in any sense a simple-minded defender of capitalism, um, even if he is a, a famous forerunner and an important theorist of capitalism. And then let's
0: shift over to, to David Hume at a high level. What's our synopsis of David Hume?
1: So Hume is widely regarded as the greatest philosopher ever to write in the English language, um, maybe second to Ho- Thomas Hobbes, depending on who you're talking to. Um, he's a very provocative philosopher. He's a powerful critic of religion, but also a powerful critic of the capacities of human reason. Um, he was a very forceful champion of commerce, as I say, even in some degree, some ways more so than, than Smith himself was, and, and of the kind of all-round benefits of, of civilization.
0: All right. So now let, let's put them together. And of course, we'll through our deep dive today, we'll get into more, more details. But I thought a, a fun jumping off point would be, again, at a high level, why is one considered the infidel and the other the professor? Again, we'll explore this further, but just right off the bat? Why, why is that dichotomy there?
1: So, so Hume is the infidel, Smith is a professor. Um, so one of the running themes of the book is that Hume and Smith adopted broadly similar views, I think, I argue, toward religion and the religious, but very different public postures toward religion and the religious. So Hume is the infidel, um, the non-believer, because he was um, a more or less avowed religious skeptic. So he never denied outright the existence of of God, of a higher power. Um, But he did think that the principal arguments on behalf of God, on behalf of a higher power, were pretty implausible. He thought the effects of religion were mostly pernicious. And this is why he was known as the great infidel during his time. Um, Now, Smith, I think this is one of the more controversial claims of the book, but um, I argue that Smith's views... Uh, with regard to religion we 're substantially closer to Humes, which is to say substantially more skeptical than um, is I think usually assumed by by Smith scholars um, and we can talk about why why that is but Um, whereas Hume was fairly forthright about his his lack of religious faith. um, Smith generally played his cards a lot closer to the vest. He he went to to great lengths in both his writings and his personal life to avoid revealing much about his religious beliefs or or lack thereof. And so this is what led to their contrary reputations. Again, Hume is christened... great infidel. And because of this, he was unable to be a professor. He was deemed unfit to teach the young. He he twice sought professorships, but in in both cases was unable to get it. The, The clergy opposed his candidacy decisively. Whereas Smith, because he was so much more reticent on the score, did become a, a widely respected professor of moral philosophy. So that's the the contrast that, that I'm trying to get at in the title.
0: And in the book you do this as well, which I really like, you, you want to make it clear to the reader, especially someone who's just being introduced to this topic, perhaps, that uh, Hume's skepticism is not to be, it may overlap with, but it's not to be conflated with outright atheism, which some accused him of.
1: Right. So he wasn't, I, I think he would have seen atheism as itself too dogmatic of a position, right? So I, I call him a religious skeptic. I think that's what he would have considered himself. In modern terms, maybe something more like an agnostic. Um, but I think he would have seen atheism as too bold, too dogmatic of a position to say that you know one thing, one is sure that there is no god. Um, and in fact, he was laughed at when Hume spent some time in in France, and he was laughed at by the the kind of more radical atheistic philosophers for being um, for refusing to say that there is no God and, and refusing to scorn the, the very idea of God in the way that they did. So, no, I think athe- I, I use the word infidel because that was the, the epithet that was most often tagged on him. Um, there's some worry with my uh, editor about whether this – the word infidel now kind of promotes or connotates Islam rather than unbelief. But, uh, you know, the unbeliever in the professor, I don't know if I couldn't think of a better <laughs> term. And again, that was the one that was uh, most often pinned on him. But yeah, I'd, I'd say he, the, the best the best uh, description of him would be a religious skeptic, right?
0: I'm glad you ended up going with that title myself, by the way. It's a lot better.
1: <laughs> um,
0: and, and again, I think uh, just to get a little deeper into one point here, because I think it's an excellent backdrop for, for the story that we will, of course, continue to explore and, and get more in depth into as well. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about why this was actually important at the time? Obviously, Adams, and what I mean by that is is this idea of, of religious belief, especially how it was intertwined with the academy at the time, right? So as you said, Smith played his his cards a little uh, closer to himself. He he wasn't out and out uh, challenging religious authority or, or being as much of a public skeptic as Hume by any means, and we'll get to some details later. But, but long story short, um, you know, other than a specific private Catholic university or perhaps a college, today it's it's hard for people to imagine what the, what the 1700s looked like with this being, for instance, uh, something that would block you from getting a professorship or some sort of honorable academic position. So why don't you paint the picture of what, you know, the 18th century looked like in, the, in that sort of way with, with these uh, public interest conflicts and how that affected career opportunities and things like that. And then we'll get more into their friendship and how they went back and forth on these things.
1: Right. So the, 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 I mean, a lot could be said about the religious climate of 18th century Scotland. There's um, kind of fights within the Kirk, the, the established Presbyterian. Presbyterian Church of Scotland, between um, the moderates, who are kind of more liberal, humane, many of whom are friends with Hume even, um, and the the group that is sometimes known as the High Flyers, the kind of more strict evangelical um, group within the Kirk. And so there there are battles between them, but it's more or less expected that everyone's religious, right? Hume is quite the outlier in being a, a religious skeptic, and it was especially expected that professors would be religious, that if you're going to shape the, the minds of the young and the future leaders of society, right, you have to teach them the proper view on these things. And so even courses in natural science, what we what they would call natural philosophy, were thoroughly imbued with religion. It's all about how God shaped the earth and and the, all, all the pieces within it. And so um, it's sometimes joke, you know, the, uh, um, I, I sometimes joke that the job of a professor um, in in 18th century Scotland, isn't the job of a professor now? The job of a professor now is more to do research and to teach. You know, usually kind of 18 to 22, 22 year olds about whatever your your subject is. For them, it was to teach basically kids, young teenagers. That it was more the, the ages were very different. The, the students in in the university were often more. You know. 12 to 15, right. then, then 18 to 22. And it's to teach them religion, right? So teaching teenagers religion was really your job as a professor. Um, so it was a kind of, yes, it, it, the, the title of being a professor of moral philosophy connotates, you know, we think of um, philosophy professors in universities today, and it wasn't, it, it was much more expected at that time that you would teach them, you know, good Presbyterian principles along with whatever you know, specific uh, re- re- philosophical tenets you're teaching them. At the
0: beginning of the book, you introduce three dichotomies that are often presented about both the men personally. And of course, I mean, perhaps you could take an hour on each of these subjects I'm going to throw at you right now. But I think it's good to have a quick hit on them as, you know, we go through our conversation for people to keep these in the back of their mind. So uh, again, as I said, there were sort of three caricatures that existed the both men and still do exist. Um, one is Hume is the abstract philosopher on the one hand, and Smith is like sort of the hard-headed capitalist economist. So m- maybe a quick word on that. on on why that's not necessarily true. And as we'll find out why there's a lot more blurring of the lines and overlap than some people tend to think on that one.
1: Right. So Hume, the abstract philosopher, is seen as Hume, the abstract philosopher, above all because of book one of the Treatise of Human Nature, um, his first book, which is really the book that philosophers still spend their time on. Um, It used to be that if you went to a a Hume Society conference, you know, 90 to 95% of the sessions would be on book one of the Treatise, just this first one of many, many books that, that Hume wrote. It's now, you know, Hume society's gotten broader and, and which is good to see. But still, this is the, the book that philosophers cut their teeth on. And so th- they tend to think of him as an above all, uh, you know, student of a, or a, a philosopher of epistemology and, and those kinds of topics. This is really, as I say, just the first thing that he wrote. He went on to write lots of other works on all kinds of subjects, religion, aesthetics, essays on every conceivable topic that you could name and then a six volume history of england right so the the he, he was in fact much broader than than just an abstract philosopher and then smith is as you say sometimes seen as a a kind of much more hard-headed economist i already indicated this when when i sort of introduced him at the the outset you know he wouldn't have understood the economics as a separate discipline. Political economy w- w- was a, a, a discipline, but it was just one of many that he um, addressed in his, his um, teaching and in his work. He uh, His first book was The Theory of Moral Sentiments on Moral Philosophy. Um, he lectured on jurisprudence or law. He lectured on rhetoric. He wrote essays on astronomy, on the development of Languages. So both of them are very wide-ranging thinkers, and and shouldn't be pigeonholed into the philosopher and the economist in the way that they they sometimes are. I think in the popular mind more than among scholars these days, but still still there.
0: And another one of those pigeonholes that people often find is uh, that some like to sort out uh, Hume as a Tory and Smith as a as a liberal uh, with a capital L for the time or a Whig, I guess as well. Uh, could you comment a bit on that as well? That again, it's 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 not. As as we go through this story, it's it's not as easy to say that. And, and as a matter of fact, that might be completely wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah. I,
0: <laughs> I'm, trying to leave, right. I'm trying to leave it to you so I don't overspill sure. into the answer myself. But
1: <laughs> no, no, that's no, fine. Right. So, you know, neither one were partisans in any straightforward sense, a Tory or a Whig. Um, Hume once described himself as a Whig, but a skeptical one. Um, so Hume, the one who's often pinned as a Tory, described himself as a Whig, but a skeptical one. Um, I think they were both Whigs just in the sense that they generally supported the government of the 18th century Britain of, the, the Britain of their time, which was kind of a, a liberal commercial, um, you know, limited government, uh, which generally practiced religious toleration and protected property and freedom of expression and the like. Um, but he, he described himself as a skeptical Whig because he doubted a lot of the kind of philosophical, almost metaphysical underpinnings that often associated with Whiggism, the kind of Lockean social contract, natural law language. So I think they were both, human Smith are both um, liberals in the very broadest sense, classical liberals, not trying to say that they were, you know, modern day libertarians. So that too is something we could talk about, but liberals in the very broadest sense of the word, but also um, kind of skeptical of, of, Grand schemes for reforming society. Um, worried that human reason doesn't have the um, wherewithal to um, to remake society from scratch, and so you know they did. You know they did promote things like free trade and religious toleration. They did want change. They, they did see reforms that they'd like to to make to the. Um, government of their time, but they always wanted this to happen in a gradual way um, r- rather than in, in in one fell swoop.
0: And of course, the third dichotomy is often presented is is uh, Hume as a religious skeptic and Smith as a confirmed believer. You've touched on that very well at the beginning, and at, through our conversation as we go along, people will be able to piece that together themselves as well. So I'm gonna I'm gonna move us on to now, as I've been teasing, we can finally dive into tracing their their friendship itself, and uh, and uh, we definitely recommend everybody uh, buys Dennis's book and and reads it. It is an awesome book. We'll never be able to cover every Within an hour of time here, but but definitely, as you as we sort of tease out some of the highlights here, we encourage everyone to to continue their curiosity and uh, and look, look deeper into things we talk about. So one thing I did want to highlight though was even before their friendship started, there was a chapter in your book called a, B- a budding friendship. But what ha- one of the things that happened before that chapter, if I'm remembering correctly, or at least at the very beginning of it, was that quote unquote too good to be true story about Adam Smith encountering Hume's work. When he was, uh, I believe it was at university or, or uh, either as a, a young professor, um, but but maybe you can go into that too. This involves a pe- people busting down doors and, and scandalous information being read. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but I but I love thinking about it like that.
1: Yeah, no, not by much, and it, it's too good to be true, but it does seem to be true. Right? They're not really hard evidence, but the evidence that we have seems to be good enough. Um, so this was during Smith's time at Oxford. He did a kind of what we. Don't, we might almost think of as a graduate um, fellowship at Oxford after he got his bachelor's degree at at Glasgow. Um, And while he was there, he um, was reading Hume's treatise of human nature. So Hume had complained um, or later complained in his, his sort of, Mini autobiography called My Own Life. The the treatise fell dead, born from the press. That no one read it. That no one paid attention to it. But Smith found his way to it somehow. Um, he, he was reading the Treatise of Human Nature in his his rooms, and um, we don't know why. Uh, apparently, he did something to arouse people's suspicions because the his his dons the the, the dons of his college at Oxford um, entered his room unannounced and, and found him. Reading Hume's book, and to their horror, naturally, because, because again of, of Hume's reputation already uh, for for religious skepticism, and so you know they they seized the the heretical book and and reprimanded him, and and you know he got into trouble for uh, for reading Hume, you know, before he had even met Hume. Um, as I say in the book, you know, this certainly can't have have um, discourage Smith's interest in Hume, right? If it's worth, if it's something that his dons are, are worth, if it's worth them taking it away that I'm sure would have made him even more interested in it. Um, but yeah, th- this is their first, uh, uh, sort of encounter,
0: and as you said, uh, for for both of these men, especially, it's hard to imagine a, a source of authority confiscating a book or some reading. Certainly would not incur- <laughs> discourage them, as you right. said. That would have been perhaps the, the uh, Smith's first encounter with Hume, uh, and then and then later on, um, before you talk about their budding friendship, you also talk about Smith and Hume's first meeting, and uh, or at least where we can reasonably say they may have first crossed paths. And I and I like what what you did in the book because you actually tell the reader to take a pause and put themselves in that moment and think what could have possibly been the impression of these two men at that exact time with Hume being 38 and, and Smith being 26, as you get on in life, that sort of age gap doesn't mean as much. But but at, the, at those sorts of ages, that, that's interesting what, what both of the men may have thought of each other on their first encounter, where they were at in their careers and, and things like that. So maybe you can take us there a bit and, and talk about what both these men would have looked like at that time in their lives.
1: So I, I, I had to s- s- pause and, and do this imaginative thing because unfortunately, we don't know <laughs> much about the first meeting. In fact, we don't even know for sure when it took place. So I, I do my conjectural thing. I say, OK, so where... Um, um, would, would be the first time where they're in the same place at the same time, and this was the autumn of 1749. So this was after Smith had finished his his sort of fellowship at at Oxford, and he was doing public lectures in Edinburgh. Um, Hume returned to Edinburgh that that fall, and I think it's likely they would have met each other fairly quickly after that they have lots of mutual friends who could have facilitated a meeting we already know as we said that that smith was interested in Hume in, in hume's ideas um i think there's also reason to think that hume might have um attended some of Smith's public lectures. They were held at the Edinburgh Philosophical Society where Hume was an active member. Anyway, so that's my conjecture is that they met in the autumn of 1749. So at this time, as you say, Hume is 38. Um, Unlike Smith, he's now already has a reputation um, as an important thinker and an irreligious thinker. He's um, a big imposing presence. He's a big... uh, we'll say broad guy, fat guy. (laughs) Um, uh, And, and, and so he's this, you know, big physical presence. He's a real, um, I think he's personally charming. Even people who are really scandalized by his thought were often charmed by by the person. Um, he's, uh, I, I describe him in the book as maybe one of the best natured philosophers who ever lived, right? Most philosophers you read are really neurotic or, or um, ill-adjusted in some way. And he always seemed to be very much at home in the world, the the kind of cheerful skeptic. He loves food and drink and wine and, and good company and, and so forth. Um, Smith at this time is 26, so he's just starting out on his career. He doesn't have any kind of established reputation. He hadn't published anything at all. Um, he was, you know, I think much more average size, average build, whatever. He probably didn't stand out as much as as Hume did in that way. He's also more um, kind of reserved, more uh, certainly absent-minded. Is uh, uh, one of the most common descriptions of Smith, almost every description you see of Smith from a contemporary you, includes the word absent, you know, the kind of <laughs> absence of mind. He's walking around mumbling to himself, not looking where he's going. Um, and so forth. Now I, I don't want to overstate this. I, I think, you know, Smith always had lots of friends around him. He was a, a companionable guy. And, and so it's not like he was, a, a um, a recluse, and similarly, Hume wasn't always the life of the party. He had his—he um, always said he would rather hang out with a few select companions, as you put it, than than you know, in, in big groups or big parties. Um, so I wouldn't want to overstate that, but in general, Hume is definitely the more kind of outgoing, gregarious of of the two, and and funnier of the two
0: geographically these men were were apart for much of their friendship actually maybe you could talk a bit about that and uh, the, the back and forth and how they often missed each other and, and the simple fact that a, a lot of what we have to judge their friendship on is is ultimately a correspondence and a few select stories from some other folks but but again they were they were very much apart uh, in many cases
1: yeah I, I should have done that i, I, I never sat down and added up, you know, the amount of time they were in the same city with one another. Um, There was a big chunk of time, a decade or so, maybe where, um, Hume was in Edinburgh. Smith was in Glasgow. We know, I think Smith went to Edinburgh much more than, than Hume went to Glasgow to participate in the Select Society and the Poker Club and all the various clubs in, in Edinburgh. His mother also lived with whom He was very close, lived in Kirkcaldy, which is a small town across the Firth of Forth from Edinburgh. So he would have probably met up with Hume on his way to visit his mother. Um. But yes, there are times when they live in the same place. They overlap for a little bit in Paris. There are times when Smith is in Kirkcaldy and and Hume's in Edinburgh, which is just a short sail away across the the Firth of Forth. but they don't actually spend more than, you know, I'm going to guess just off the top of my head right now, maybe a couple years living in the same city. Um, so in some ways, it's remarkable that they became such good friends. I think it's pretty clear that both considered each other his best friend by the end of his life. As I say in the introduction of the book, they both in their letters use my dearest friend as an epi- as a description, as an opening of their, their letters, and, and they don't do this with anyone else. So they're, they're they become these very close friends despite not living together. You would hope, you know, if you're me, (laughs) if you're writing this book, you would hope that this means, well, that means there's this huge, rich, long correspondence where they don't live together. So they, 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 you know, pour themselves out on the page. Hundreds of letters, perhaps thousands. Yes, right. (laughs) Alas, for me, that's not the case. So you read, you know, the, the, the correspondence of um, I don't know Voltaire or Rousseau or you know some of the other figures of the period is you know runs 30 volumes or 50 volumes and these huge, massive uh, things. Smith was a terrible, terrible correspondent. Um, had most of his papers burned before he died. The, we, the correspondence that exists fits in one volume. Hume's is a little bit more extensive. We have three volumes. There's maybe a couple more uh, a volume or two. Two more left that, that weren't collected in the, these early collections. But all told, between Hume and Smith, we have only 56 letters, um, which isn't a lot. There are some that are also of those 56 pretty um, insubstantial. They're just kind of, you know, maybe a letter of recommendation to, or a letter of introduction to somebody saying, Hey, you know, here's this, this will be delivered by this guy, look out for him or whatever. There are some that are, uh, I think, more substantial and interesting or revealing about their characters or funny. Um, and so I do obviously what I can with those letters, but yeah, alas, you would hope that that them not being in the same city would, would have made life easier for me, but it, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and and
0: i think as anyone reads the book going through that they'll see that i think you did actually a very good job of of still piecing together the story even with such limited correspondence so, so that's awesome and and nevertheless they did establish what you call of course in one of your chapter titles a, a budding friendship um i won't i won't spend too much time on it cuz i want to get to some other major milestones but from uh, 1750 to 1754 as you as you outline in the book uh th- these men were still within either uh, directly each other's intellectual radar as their uh, friendship was growing, um, you know, either through correspondence or when they did overlap in terms of visits and things like that. They did spend time together and things like uh, some societies they started together. Uh, they did visit each other. So wh- why don't we paint that sort of uh, 17 early 1750s picture and then we can, of course, get on to the other parts of their friendship as well.
1: So I can do this one relatively quickly. So this was early 1750s is when um, Smith becomes a professor at the University of Glasgow. So following the footsteps of his 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 own teacher his own uh I think mentor's too strong his own teacher Francis Hutchison um there was some chance of Hume joining him there and and I talk about what how his, uh, somewhat ambivalent attitude toward it um but t- toward Hume joining him there um but again Hume would have never realistically been able to become a professor in 18th century Scotland so so that didn't work out um the Hume at this time spends much of this time um, working as a, a librarian for um, a kind of law of society uh, um, in, in Edinburgh. So, uh, again, at this time, Smith is mostly in Glasgow. Hume is mostly in Edinburgh, which were the towns that each preferred. H- Hume liked Edinburgh and the... Um, Kind of intellectual vitality of the town, Smith thought it was cramped and dirty and, and smelly, which it very much was. And like Glasgow better, had a more kind of academic uh, university type air, um, and and was more commercial. Uh, I think is not insignificant as well. Um, so they they kind of settled on on opposite sides. Of, well, east west <laughs> wise, opposite sides of of Scotland. Um, this was in Hume really is pouring out. Philosophical treatises, uh, one every year or two. Um, Smith holds his fire; his first book doesn't come till 1759, um, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get to. But uh, so so this was in Hume is establishing his reputation and, and writing about lots of things, whereas Smith is just kind of starting out on his his career as a professor.
0: And actually, we're we're about to jump into that next milestone here, but there, it's actually only just a couple minutes before the break. So so let's let's take our break right now, Dennis, uh, and then and then we'll jump right back in after the break. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with uh, Dennis Rasmussen. Today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curious task at curioustask@liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Janet Buffton, Joe Aragona, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at curioustaskils, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back everyone you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Dennis Rasmussen today. Uh Dennis so uh, right before the break we had just sort of finished off like the the budding friendship the sort of earlier period of of the friendship between uh David Hume and Adam Smith and uh, and you just sort of teased that Adam Smith held his fire on one of his major works until later. So so let, let's get to that fire now. Um, and let's let's talk about the theory of moral sentiments. So this is one of two of Smith's largest works. And it's clear here by the interaction that the men had over the book that they, they were indeed great friends. I mean, S- Smith respected and appreciated Hume enough to take some of his ideas and run with them, uh, expand them or correct them where he, he personally felt necessary. And of course, Hume complimented Smith and tried to promote his work as best as he could. That's sort of like a, a quick uh, discussion of it. But, but why don't you take, take a bit of a deeper dive into it and, and highlight some things of note? For us around this period, about the work, of course, and their friendship.
1: So, so Smith's first book is *The Theory of Moral Sentiments*, as the title implies. It's a book of moral philosophy, asking, you know, what is morality. What, what what does morality consist of, and and kind of where does it come from? It, what and then in the human mind leads us to develop the idea of, of morality. Um, Hume is almost certainly the single most important interlocutor in this book. The the it's really almost hard to find passages in which he's not engaging with Hume in one way or another. Um, I think his his Smith's moral theory is very broadly Humean in in the most important and, and broadest ways, insofar as it's a kind of um, This worldly uh, kind of practical moral theory, asking, well, let me put it this way, that both human Smith thinks that morality ultimately comes not from God or from something written in the fabric of the cosmos, but rather from us, from from human beings. Um, They both think that morality comes from human sentiments rather than reason, hence the title of the book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Um, both of them think that morality it c- comes from our sentiments, uh, the, the things that we feel when we're in the proper, when we adopt the proper perspective. So this is what Hume calls the, the common point of view and Smith calls the impartial spectator. So in the the very broadest um Of questions, I think Smith is very much a Humean. I spend time in the chapter going through a number of issues, going through a number of issues on which uh, Smith um, diverges from, or I think it's in his view corrects Hume uh, with regard to the way sympathy works, with regard to the role of utility, with regard to what justice consists of, and with regard to the role that religion plays in in morality. Um, There's a lot that could be said about each of these, but. I think the broader point is that these are mostly just tweaks on the margins that that Smith is very much a Humean in, in, in the broadest strokes.
0: As I was saying earlier as well like and and Hume did not – back to their friendship angle, like, you know, he didn't take this as a challenge. He was in many cases – I think he had one or two footnotes for for Smith, basically. Uh, but but uh, but other than that, he didn't take this as an, a challenge or a front. It was, it's the ultimate compliment if someone runs with your ideas. And he did indeed pr- promote, promote the work as well. So these men were supporting each other at this time greatly.
1: He did. And I, let me jump in and say, you know, the – Hume also wrote Smith his his letter saying, you know, when he he received the theory of moral sentiments, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the letter that Hume wrote to Smith, I describe as maybe the most charming letter in the entire history of philosophy. I can't go through it. It's a, you know, a kind of an elaborate setup, but um, listeners should should go check this out. This is a letter that Hume wrote congratulating Smith on the theory of moral sentiments. It's very charming, very funny, um, and just shows kind of how um, – how proud Hume was of uh, for Smith, and and how happy he was for Smith's success. Let's shift gears a
0: bit and get into uh, this. Will be a fun one, of course. Uh, Hume's quarrel with with uh, Jean Jacques Rousseau, because I think uh, this is also a gr- great illustration, um, not only of how both men saw the issue and, and how to eventually deal with it, but also how you know they they did talk to each other and also appeal to each other for advice and discussion on these sorts of things. So, why why don't we talk a bit about that? T- tell us. What was the issue with human J.J. Rousseau? Why don't, we, why don't we get into that fun story?
1: Well, what wasn't the issue? <laughs> so, this, you know, the, the, this is a tale that has been told many times. So, there's the Rousseau's dog, the philosopher's quarrel. There are several books um, about this this quarrel, and I just devote one chapter to it, um, mostly because you can't not, right? It's such a, a, a fun, uh, uh, kind of irresistible story where, where you have these two figures, human Rousseau, or both these absolute celebrities of their time. Um, You know, it's hard to even imagine philosophers being celebrities uh, now in the way that they were then. You know, everybody, every literate person in Europe knew about them. And so when these two, you know, Rousseau is, has, Persecutions, both real and imagined, in in France and in Geneva, and you know, throughout the continent. And so Hume essentially offers him a refuge in England for a while. Rousseau says, "No, no, no, I don't want to go to England." Eventually, takes him up on it. Um, Rousseau very quickly bites the hand that feeds him, decides that Hume is part of some vast conspiracy to bury him in obscurity in England and to damage his reputation, and writes this, I can't remember how long, but something like a 30-page letter to Hume laying out all the terrible things that he he suspects Hume had done to him and uh, trying to, to, again, damage his reputation. Um, it's almost entirely preposterous. Hume's trying to decide, what the heck do I do? The... the Rousseau is one of the most um, kind of potent writers in all of Europe, and he thinks, you know, oh, he knows that Rousseau is writing his memoirs, what became the Confessions, and he thinks, oh my goodness, I, my my reputation is going to be ruined. What should I do about this? And so he's deciding, should I just, should I publish the the correspondence between myself, between Hume and and Rousseau? Um, so he gets advice from from his friends in Paris and from Smith. Um, Smith says, no, don't publish, don't publish. Hume against Smith's good advice does end up publishing. Um, I think it mostly vindicates Hume. I think Rousseau's uh, attack was almost entirely unwarranted. But it, the publication came off, I think, at the time as maybe a little bit spiteful um, and, and unnecessary. And so um, I think this is one instance of um, Hume turning down Smith's wise advice.
0: And what do you, what do you think that... We can learn from sort of again S- Smith's advice, and and then Hume ultimately not following that advice in this case. Uh, what can we learn about the way both men seem to think was the best way to handle situations like this, publicity, and and sort of the public affairs that go around either either philosophical work or quarrels like this? We're going to obviously get into a, lo- a lot of things that happen toward the end of their life about attitudes that they had contrary to each other about certain things. But what can we learn? we learn at this point uh, about both of these men's approach to this sort of thing
1: so smith is undoubtedly the more private of the two and and thinks you know wants to keep himself private and and um you know he said uh he he didn't like the the idea of publishing your gossiping little stories in the newspaper as i think how he put it something like that to to hume um so he you know Hume was worried about his reputation he he thought he said to to Smith you know look if Rousseau so attacked my writings who cares that that either my writings will t- be able to, to stand up for themselves or they're not worth <laughs> defending but he's attacking my reputation i don't know any other way to to Defend my reputation, other than to to prove the point, and and, um, and and so he he thought it was necessary. But no, Smith is always more the cautious of the two. Until, as you're hinting, and I'll hint too, at the very end, when he becomes shockingly less ca- uh, cautious at, at the very end. But um, at this point, he's he's definitely the more cautious of the two.
0: Let, let's switch gears then into uh, 1776. Uh, it, it's a, it's a final year of friendship, packed with activity. You, I, this is you in the book. I'm quoting you. During the course of 1776, Smith published the book on which his reputation would come to rest. He and Hume clashed over the fate of the latter's dialogue concerning natural religion. Hume's health declined rapidly, culminating in his much scrutinized death, and Smith composed a controversial account of Hume's end that would provoke the abiding ire of the devout. I haven't lived too long yet, but I don't think I've had that exciting of a year with any of my friends yet. So that's very <laughs> exciting. <laughs> so let's right. let's sort of take that that uh, ball of spaghetti, if you will, and parse out the the strands of each. Let's start with with. G- the Wealth of Nations. So, so the Wealth of Nations was released. This is obviously a huge thing. We're still talking about it today, and uh, and uh, let's talk about what that meant to Smith, and of course, what that meant to Hume by by proxy as well.
1: So yeah, so this, I mean, I, I guess I should say Smith himself, if his if the evidence uh, or the the the. Um save his contemporaries as to be believed, he always thought that the theory of moral sentiments was the better, the more important book of the two. Uh, Of course, The Wealth of Nations became much more famous and and had much more of an impact. Um, It's um, harder to say, so I, I said earlier that um, Hume was almost certainly the most famous or the most important interlocutor for Smith in the theory of moral sentiments. I should also say he never mentions Hume by name in that work, and there are a variety of reasons I don't need to get into why that would be, but he, he always kind of takes on Hume's arguments without mentioning Hume by name. In The Wealth of Nations, he does bring up Hume. He he bring, names Hume, I think it's five times. At one point, he transcribes four full paragraphs from the history of England. Um, he calls Hume... Um, something like by far the most illustrious philosopher and historian of the age or something like this. Um, That said, I think there are fewer passages in the wealth of nations where he's clearly um, taking Hume on or developing Hume's ideas. Um, Hume had, um, argued for free trade and commerce and the benefits of commerce and free trade decades before the Wealth of Nations. Um, and so Smith is in some sense following in his footsteps, but the Wealth of Nations is such a um, bigger, um, more systematic um Kind of analysis of commerce and commercial society than Hume ever did. That it's there are fewer places where you can say, "Aha! He's Smith is clearly building on Hume here." Um, I do try to you know uh, one of the things I try to do in the book. I I try to suggest that Hume has often been. Taken as the the kind of between the two, between Hume and Smith, as the authority on moral philosophy, and Smith's moral theory is just seen as a kind of series of footnotes to Hume. Um, I try to say, well, no, some of Smith's revisions are are important and and frankly persuasive. I also suggest that on the, the contrary, on the flip side, Hume's contributions to political economy have often been unduly neglected in favor of Smith's. where Hume is rarely thought of as an economist insofar as he is. He's seen as just a minor predecessor of, of Smith. But he did kind of get there first, right? As I say, he did argue for free trade. He did stress the moral and social and political benefits of commerce, Um in the 1750s, right? You know, decades before the Wealth of Nations appeared, um, I'd in particular recommend to listeners if they're they're looking to to read something, Hume's essay um, that was originally entitled of luxury and then was later retitled of refinement in the arts. I think is one of the most um, forceful and comprehensive, um, and yet succinct defenses of the whole liberal commercial order that's ever been written. It's something like 12 pages long, and it's amazing how much he he fits in there um, in, in that small space. And, and as you mentioned in the
0: book, although the theory of moral sentiments, when it was released, it was well received. And it did definitely add to Adam Smith's reputation, the, the, the release of the wealth of nations. And this is of course, evidenced by even decades after Smith's death of what people really focus on when they begin to learn him. Uh, it, it, that really sort of eclipses everything, right? There, there's a picture in your book. I really like it. That's, uh, I think someone painted of Adam Smith and the caption is the author of the wealth of nations. Like th- this is what he was known for, when it came out. And, and this is basically the mainstay of the man in the intellectual sphere at the time.
1: Yes, later on. Now, so th- there again, so the theory of moral sentiments comes out in 1759, The Wealth of Nations, not till 1776. So there's a big chunk of his life, his career, 17 years, where his only reputation is the theory of moral sentiments. This is really the only thing he's published. So for much of his life, that's what he's known for. Once the wealth of nations comes out, that it sort of eclipses in the minds of his contemporaries. And certainly, as you say, of, of his, um, of people after he died, the kind of the importance of him and his, his reputation. Um, I guess I should also mention, I, I didn't say this in my uh, previous answer. I, I should have mentioned um, one of the other things I discuss in this chapter on the wealth of nations is that um one of the areas where Smith diverges from Hume is that he's in fact much more ready than Hume is to acknowledge potential dangers and and drawbacks of commercial society, that that, um, Hume sees commercial society as better in almost every possible way. Smith worries about the way that commerce produces big inequalities, that too much division of labor can can make people kind of feeble and ignorant. If you spend all your life on on one small task, making the 18th part of a pin, then then you can't exercise your your body or your mind. Um, He worries about the way wealthy merchants and manufacturers will often collude against the public interest. Um, He worries about the way just the the desire for wealth often leads people to submit themselves to endless toil and anxiety in the pursuit of of frivolous material goods that provide only fleeting satisfaction. So he's, now, none of this is to say that Smith's um, embrace of commercial society is in any way partial or half-hearted. I think he's very much with human thinking that it's unequivocally better than the alternatives, that insofar as it provides a greater degree of Liberty and security and prosperity than any other kind of society. Um, he, he thinks that it's a commercial society is a very good thing. Um, so he thinks that the benefits outweigh the costs. But he's more willing than Hume is to acknowledge that there are costs involved and, and to seek ways to ameliorate them. I think is one of the more interesting things. This is something that my students are always surprised about. Um, I, I taught while I was at Tufts University um, a, a seminar on Human Smith every year, and you know students are always coming in expecting Smith to be the Smith that they expected. Right, the, the kind of uh, Dogmatic defender of laissez faire. So they're always surprised to learn that Smith is, in fact, has a much more, um, I think, nuanced or ambivalent view of commercial society than his good friend did. Back to that caricature we mentioned at the very beginning, it sort of flips it on its head,
0: right? This idea that Hume is, again, that abstract philosopher who, who you in that caricature, you think would be the one having more of an attack on, on commercial society. And, and Smith is the hard headed capitalist economist on the other side. But again, sort of a flip there, which, which is very interesting against people's right. expectations. So, so let's shift over, of course, uh, to the the unfortunate circumstances of, of Hume's declining health, um, which eventually, of course, culminated in his death. Um, but but during that time, obviously, uh, you know, David Hume intelligent man that he was was obviously pre- preparing for his death and, and of course some things that may happen after it so this was the time where he uh he named uh smith as, as the literary executor uh, of his will and and this caused some con- controversy between the two men uh specifically on on a few pieces that were going to be published and how smith felt he should handle that so, so why don't you take us down that road and, and tell us exactly what happened there and uh again in the book you note that some people sort of write this off as, as the ultimate strain on the friendship but but uh, but I'd like you to take us through it, as I said, and tell us what, what you think about it, and uh, and what we should take away from it.
1: Good. So this too, this chapter on the the, the, the kind of controversy or, or uh, dispute between Hume and Smith on Hume's dialogues is um, another place where I, um, <laughs> well, even more than any than on Smith and religion, I'm I, I'm trying to turn the the scholarly consensus on its head. So the um, the basics background of the story is Hume wrote much earlier in life a book called The Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion. And just before he died, he asked Smith to publish it, and Smith said no. Um, there's a lot of details that I don't need to go into, but that's the basics of it. And most scholars, in fact, basically every scholar that, who's written about this sees this as a um, kind of dereliction of duty on Smith's part, that he Smith was being unnecessarily cautious and and even sees this as an act of betrayal, right? He's denying his best friend's dying wish. Um, my argument is that this episode was in fact um, both less um, acrimonious and less philosophically charged than, than um, is generally assumed. Um, so m- many people assume that this uh, Smith's refusal to publish um, Smith uh, Hume's dialogue really hurt Hume's feelings and caused this great rift between them and um, you know, I, the, the evidence just isn't there. Hume continues to call Smith my dearest friend in, in his letters. Um, he has Smith stay with him at his house in Edinburgh for several weeks just before he dies. And as I'll, I'm sure I'll say in a minute, he gives Smith permission to kind of finish his autobiography. That you know, everything suggests that Hume's affection for Smith remained entirely intact over this period. So I, I don't think it was as acrimonious as it was thought to be. I think it's also less philosophically charged in the sense that, um, many people assume that Smith, so the obvious question is why, right? Why does Smith refuse to publish this, this work? And, and many assume that it's because Smith is scandalized by it, that, that he, he thinks, um, that, that Hume was wrong, that he maybe even, he couldn't come to grips with Hume's arguments and the like. Now, if he's, if Smith's religious views are as close to Hume's as I suggest they are, then that seems unlikely. Um, I think the likeliest explanation is the simplest one, which Smith himself expresses in his letters, as he says, well, I'm weary of the public clamor that this book is going to provoke um, and, and the effects that this clamor would have on what he calls his quiet, um, meaning his kind of privacy, and, and and as well as I think Hume's posthumous reputation. Um, then the qu- obvious question is, is he being excessively cautious here is this a, an act of cowardice as is often said um and here too i say not really uh first of all if it is an act of cowardice it's not unique to smith every single one of hume's friends who knew about the dialogues told him don't publish it um and even more importantly hume himself had refrained from publishing it for two and a half decades he wrote this book in 1751 and he himself held back from publishing it for 25 years moreover he did so, for the exact same reason as Smith, he told him his, his letter, his editor, um, just before he died, that he didn't want to create a clamor that would pre- prevent him from living quietly. He uses the same exact words that Smith used. Um, and so I conclude, you know. Uh, again, very contrary to the, the way this is normally depicted. In some ways, the, the more perplexing question isn't why did Smith refuse to publish the dialogues? Really, the more perplexing question is why does Hume throw this hot potato in his lap? Right? Why is he all of a sudden so adamant about publishing after holding it back for 25 years and why does he foist this obligation on smith you know yeah maybe hume doesn't have much to lose he's, he knows he's about to die he's very sick but obviously smith isn't and and he knows hume knows full well that smith is concerned about his his privacy his tranquility his, his private um so i i suggest that all things considered in, in fact it's hume's part in the exchange that's harder to to account for than than smith's
0: ultimately of course uh hume hume does die and uh and adam smith's uh Uh, publishes a a letter along with, as you said, he was given permission by Hume, which I guess is another thing we should stop and note that you know, if if there's this idea that there was sort of this friendship-changing incident, um, Hume did ultimately grant Adam Smith, I forget what the exact quote was, but it was basically ultimate liberty right. in editing the Hume's autobiography in any way he chose, so still great trust was there. And ultimately, this was published with, with a letter from Adam Smith, which caused clamor in its own right anyway, although he very um, craftily and very uh, slyly chose his words in that, I think it was clear what he was trying to go for and sort of, in my mind, at least give a bit of a last hurrah to Hume's reputation as, as well as, as his belief. So why don't, why don't you take us through that as well? And uh, not not only the, the sort of final days, if you will, discussion, but also w- what that letter meant and and uh, and the clamor it created.
1: Sure. Okay. So th- the reason this is all such a big deal, why Hume's death is such a big deal is because of his reputation for impiety, right? That, that made everybody care how he died. Um, everybody was concerned, you know, is this, this skeptic, Is he going to persist in his skepticism? Um, Would he experience anguish and despair because he has no no, um, afterlife to look forward to or, you know, he's going to hell or whatever it is? And so everybody's curious about how Hume is going to face his death. And so Smith says essentially – and look, Hume knows this, right? He's he's determined to die as he thinks a philosopher should without undue hopes and fears and the like – and, and kind of wants to show the world, and so in, in part to do this, he publishes a very short autobiography. It's called My Own Life. It's you know ten or twelve pages long in the modern edition, um, where especially toward the end, he's kind of saying, "Look, I'm I'm in good humor. I'm in good spirits. I'm not changing my views." But of course, that can't he can't himself take the story to the very end because he's going to be dead at the very end. And so Smith essentially offers to. Do that to, to fill out the story to take the story from where Hume leaves it off uh, a few months before he died to to his death and as you say Hume very kind of um, easily says no sure Smith do whatever you want you're too good to, to do to think anything related to this is worth your trouble but but feel free to, to add whatever you want and so Smith composes this in a form of the, a letter to William Strand, who's their, their, both of their publishers. Um, and this work, I think, is a big deal. It's a bigger deal than it's often made to be. It's one of only three things that Smith published under his name during his lifetime. So there's the theory of moral sentiments, the wealth of nations, and this. And yes, this is much shorter. It's a kind of an occasional piece, but it's, um, you know, Smith was not one who is real eager or ready to publish things under his name. And, and here he chooses to. And this, the the the, the letter that he publishes um, doesn't really, it doesn't explicitly call attention to Hume's lack of religious faith, but of course he wouldn't have had to. Everybody was curious about this. And it does, um, uh, chronicle or maybe even flaunt Hume's cheerfulness and equanimity during his his final days. Um, the concluding sentence of the, the piece, which ended up being one of the, the kind of more controversial or, or uh, things that, that Smith ever published, uh, he concludes by saying that Hume approaches nearly to the idea of a perfectly wise and virtuous man as perhaps the nature of human frailty will permit. So he's depicting his good friend, this Skeptic Hume as a paragon of wisdom and virtue, and you know as he knew or should have known this would this did cause outrage among the the religious among the devout um. So Smith later commented, and this is a very famous phrase to, to, from Smith scholars, he later said that this, this work, this, this letter Strand on, on Hume's death, brought on me 10 times more abuse than the very violent attack I'd made on the entire commercial system of Great Britain. And this is, again, a, a very familiar line to Smith scholars, because there's this very colorful reference to the wealth of nations, right? The, a very violent attack on the, the whole commercial system of Great Britain. Um, but it's, I, I think... Not many Smith scholars would have known what the ten times more abuse looked like. What the, the, the abuse that Smith did suffer because of this letter, and I spend a whole chapter outlining it, and it's really pretty um, vicious. And it comes from um, lots of so the attack is in some ways led by this guy George Horn, who's now forgotten, but is a, an important cleric of the time. But Samuel Johnson, James Boswell, Edmund Burke, there are lots of important figures who who um, really. Denounce Smith for having depicted Hume in a positive light, and and in particular his cheerful attitude toward death in a positive light. And so I, I spend a whole whole chapter, uh, you know, outlining the the various um, attacks on Smith in in the name of uh, you know um, defending the, the the religion that Hume was so so dismissive of. And as you said, it's important
0: to note that, and and I, of course I encourage everybody to find this letter online. Uh, at the very least, if you don't get Dennis's book, but I think you should. It's um, also in the appendix in the it's book. In the appendix in the book, al- along with uh, along with Hume's autobiography, so there's lots of lots of great stuff in there. Um, but but yeah, like it's important to note that that you know this isn't Smith just saying you know he was a good guy, and then everyone says oh uh, Smith, you're agreeing with what, who we view as a bad guy. You know that that's controversial. Like as we were sort of saying before, uh, sort of the the final word almost on uh, Hume's life uh, in many ways was uh, a very well known man that would have been smith with a great reputation because of his work so far uh, basically saying this this person that you've been chastising as an infidel in my opinion is one of the most wise and virtuous people ever and and that as you were saying i don't think it can be understated uh that, that's obviously a huge thing for the time. So, so you can imagine the clamor, right? As you said, this isn't just like a sort of a gossip column back and forth. This is a huge public issue. And that's what that, the, the cautious Adam Smith comes out and says that. That's crazy.
1: Right. So again, you know, I think the the uh, religious had basically written off Hume by this point, right? So they're, they're interested in how he dies as a, almost as a curiosity. But he's this incorrigible skeptic. He, you know, he, we, we don't need to worry about him. But Smith is this widely respected well, at this point, former professor of moral philosophy, and and he kind of rubs their noses in it, right? In, in Hume's impiety, and so, and so this is why it, why it was a, the the real outrage was what Smith did rather than what Hume did.
0: It's funny that he does reflect. Ultimately, you know, then I've gotten ten times more abuse from this letter than than in my entire life when I attacked the commercial system of Britain. I, the, I don't know. Do, do you feel that he's being a little flippant and fun there when he kind of says that? Like, he I, I, he must have known that his letter was going to be a big deal and, and exactly what he was doing. He was a very precise man. It took him years to finish his greatest works. I, I don't think he, he really did... View that letter so flippantly as just a little letter.
1: Yeah, no, and he uh, he calls it something like a you know a, a harmless sheet of paper I happen to write about <laughs> our friend Hume or something, right? You know, he, he says it as if it was this offhand thing, which, as I say, you know, is one of three things he publishes under his name during this lifetime. Nothing Smith did in public was was offhand, um, and so no, I think it was a brave act. I think it's in some ways, especially given his his perennial aversion to public controversy. Um, as you say, the or suggested earlier the, the contrast with the quarrel with Rousseau is obviously. There, where he's the one now wading into um, controversy, and I think, as you say, pretty um, deliberately. Um, so it's a, a brave act and an act of friendship, right? He he knows that Hume is is att- going to be attacked and, and seen in, in a certain light, and he wants to write the sort of authorized version of his his death and and to prove the contrary.
0: So our time's almost completely up here. I have one more question before the formal wrap up for you, and and that's essentially more of a, a, a wondering aloud thing. I know that again this. What I'm about to ask could take a whole hour unto itself, possibly more. But um, I guess a lot of people always want to know after a conversation like this, especially since we mostly focused on on the friendship itself. Um, h- how do you imagine? What their works—that is obviously human. Smith. What their works would have looked like with, without the friendship. I mean, they were very influential w- with each other. I mean, some may want to say that, oh well, they would still been would have been geniuses in their own right. But, but obviously, you wrote an entire book on their friendship, so it's not just that this is a great story of friendship. But again, it's one that that shaped modern thought. So, how, how likely would it be that? That these two men would have turned out the same way without each other. I know it's counterfactual and it's sort of a butterfly effect thing, but but just for fun to wonder about that.
1: Sure. So, well, f- first of all, I guess I'd say I think Hume's works would be almost entirely the same. So Hume, I, I guess I, maybe I should have said this much <laughs> toward the beginning of the the podcast, but um, Hume is the older of the two by 12 years. He had almost finished publishing everything that he wrote before Smith even began to publish before Smith published his first book, The *Theory of Moral Sentiments*, and so, you know. It's possible that Smith influenced him in conversation, but um again Hume had written so much before he'd even met Smith that I don't know that his his worldview is formed by Smith. Um, so the the influence is almost entirely one way. It's Hume on Smith. And there, wow, it's even hard to think what Hume uh, sorry, what Smith thought would be like without Hume, especially his moral theory, right? his his first book. So, as I say, Hume is easily the main interlocutor in that book. Um, obviously, something like the letter strand would never have happened without without Hume. So that would have we uh, would have lost that, what I think is an important insight into Smith's worldview and character from that. Um, the Wealth of Nations maybe would be more or less similar. Um, I'm here again. I think he was more influenced by Hume's broad worldview than any of his specific arguments. So um, maybe maybe Hume kind of stiffened his backbone, so to speak, in, in his defense of commerce and free trade and the like. But um, that might have been more more similar. But yeah, I mean, it's almost impossible to think what Smith's moral theory would be like without Hume. Maybe it'd be more like Francis Hutchison, who is his teacher at Glasgow, um, who's also a moral sentimentalist, but spent you know relied quite a lot more on a, a god implanted innate moral sense rather than the workings of sympathy um you know i guess i could go down the, the counterfactual road for a while but um the the point and and uh of the subtitle as you say uh, how this friendship influenced modern thought is really how hume did more than anyone to shape smith's worldview and character and then how much smith's own worldview um shape modern thought. And
0: and again, even aside from, from their works, the, the friendship itself is, is very, very charming and, and excellent to read about. So that, that's why I think what makes the book work as well. Um, so, so Dennis, uh, it's, it's time to wrap up. We're pretty much out of time here. So we always like to let the guest have the last word. So I'll kick that over to you in just a second here by saying what I always like to say at the end of the episodes. We've talked about a lot. Let's bring it full circle. Let's put a finer point on our exploration of the question today. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways here? for someone listening to you on the relationship between Adam Smith and David Hume and how it shaped definitely one of their uh sets of thoughts a- and modern thought in general. Uh if 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 someone was if you were to leave someone with one or two things to to think about, what would you like that to be?
1: Um I guess I'd say just that Hume and Smith were both um Humane, pragmatic, skeptical thinkers—much broader, much more nuanced, and interesting than the caricatures of them um, might lead you to believe. That it's worth spending time with them. That they're both generally, not in every instance, but generally admirable characters. Which is also nice to um, to sort of nice to spend time with them in in that way. Um, That there's something to be gained from reading about a philosophical friendship rather than a philosophical quarrel. I I talk about this a bit in the introduction of the book, that there are all these books about um, philosophical quarrels, but really almost none about philosophical friendships, which I think is in some ways a much more important topic um, insofar as friendship is often pretty much always been seen as central to philosophy from Plato onward. Um, and so that there's um, kind of just spending time with them is, is, is good for your soul. Let's leave it there then. Dennis Rasmussen,
0: thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you for having me. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.